0: Love am not
1: shootings in the span of a day well actually one terrorist attack and one mass shooting uh we're going to talk about that i'm going to lead with that story there's quite a bit to say um trump actually just gave a, a speech i think within the last hour about this we have um The media coming after Tulsi Gabbard in the wake of her destroying Kamala Harris. There's a lot to say about that as well. Um, Wait until you hear the Republican reaction. We have some elected Republicans, and they trot out their favorite diversion after a lot of people are slaughtered in America. You could probably guess what that diversion is because you've only heard them make this point about 812 other times. Um, and then later on in the show, we have Bernie dunking on Liz Cheney, which is, which is a beautiful thing to see. We have, um, Joe Biden doubling down on his millennial bashing. Bill Maher somehow keeps getting worse and worse. And, uh, we have video of that, even though that video is guaranteed to HBO is guaranteed to jack any uh, revenue that video might make. They've been doing that a lot recently. And then uh, Gassy Newt Gingrich, and and Rush Limbaugh, later on in the show. So there is a bunch of stuff to talk about today. Let's start on that uh, very serious and very sad note. Um, This is about the many people who were killed in the past few days. So within one day, um, the specific numbers, actually within 13 hours, we had two massacres in the United States. Um, One was a a white supremacist terror attack. That's the one that you see here over my uh, left shoulder. And um, in Dayton, Ohio, there was a mass shooting. They're not sure the motive of that person yet, but he killed his sister and many other people. I believe it was at a bar. So Within a very, very short time span, we have at least 29 people who were massacred. I believe 20 happened with the uh, El Paso-Walmart terrorist attack and nine at the Dayton, Ohio shooting. Now, again, the Dayton, Ohio shooting, the motive is not clear. Um, Twitter pulled down the guy's Twitter account Uh, what's fascinating is that the dude was uh, a leftist, a committed leftist. I saw, I read through a, a bunch of his tweets, and there's no mistaking it. Now, did he actually attack people in the name of that ideology? So is it a terror attack? Well, that we have no idea, because there was no, you know, manifesto political creed that was posted along with this attack, so I believe what law enforcement is thinking in the case of the Dayton, Ohio, attack at the moment is that it was a mass shooter who was killing people because he's mentally deranged or whatever it might be. Um, Now, it's possible that that motive changes, and if so, we'll find out. But as of right now, it appears that that's the case. Now, in the case of um, the white supremacist terror attack in El Paso, there's nothing up in the air about that attack. Uh, the dude posted a, a, a political manifesto. I read through the manifesto, and it's crystal clear what he's doing. He believes in a white ethnostate. Um, he says as much. He wants to set up a white ethno state, and he calls, you know, immigrants coming to this country an invasion, and he thinks that by massacring a bunch of them, it will be a disincentive for brown people to come to the United States of America. So no uncertain terms about that. Um, it, it's, it's a weird manifesto, because in the same manifesto, he talks about how, you know, corporations now control the country. He talks about the degradation of our environment, which he's against. So it's a very strange stew of beliefs, because in a very similar way to um, maybe not necessarily Richard Spencer, but the other guy, Matthew Heimbach, who's the, you know, head of, I think it's called the American Worker Party, although I could be mistaken about that. What they've done is they've mixed, like, flat-out white supremacist beliefs, and then they try to sprinkle in aspects of leftism to try to make it more appealing. So, in other words, you know, they believe in, like, unions, and they're anti-Wall Street, and they're anti-war, and then they think that that's, you know, a part of their ideology that will appeal to more people, and then, of course, there's a giant heaping dose of flat-out bigotry and xenophobia because they're advocating for a white ethno-state. Um, it's a This guy who did the terror attack in Dayton, it's a very similar thing. I read through the entire manifesto. And, um, I mean, it's clear that at the core of what he did is his racism and his xenophobia and his bigotry. And that's why he went to a Walmart in El Paso and just massacred brown people. Um, so that's at the core of his ideology and why he acted. And, again, it's crystal clear. And as we often see, this guy was basically inspired by and spurred on by previous white supremacist terrorists. And this is something that's its a trend now. You know, you see that people who do terror attacks are inspired by people who have done terror attacks. And it's hard to really, you know, figure out exactly what the mechanism is, because some experts would argue, well, yeah, it's just, it's the ideology flat out that's, you know, making this person do what they did, and others would argue it's a chicken or the egg type situation, and it's almost like they're vicious and murderous, and they have this bloodlust, and then they just add on a rationalization later, and you know, I don't know which one of those things is true. And frankly, I don't care. <laughs> All I know is um, it's a horrendous thing to see now on a, on a regular basis. We have in this country not just mass shootings, but also white supremacist terror attacks. And, you know, the statistics show that there are more uh, right wing terror attacks in this country than Islamic terror attacks. The counterpoint that people make to that is, well, yeah, but statistically only like 1% of the U.S. is Muslims, so, you know, you still have a higher amount per capita of Islamic fundamentalist terror attacks, and that's a fair point, but yeah, when you have such a large pool of far-right-wingers, white male far-right-wingers, you can understand why the numbers show statistically that that's, you know, that's a bigger threat, and um, And of course, you know, the government has defunded most efforts to track that kind of terrorism. And they've redirected and diverted funds more towards fighting Islamic fundamentalist terrorism. And, you know, perhaps um, it would behoove you to spend some money on fighting white nationalist and white supremacist terror as well, because, again, we're seeing an uptick of this, and it is incredibly, incredibly disturbing. But the thing about this that was on another level to me is I wasn't even a little bit shocked. And that's scary. It's scary when it's like I almost had a lack of a reaction to it. It was almost like, what would you expect? And that that should not ever be the case when we're dealing with something like just happened. I mean, again, 29 people dead in a 13-hour time span one of them a mass shooting and another one a a terror attack, my reaction shouldn't be like a shrug, but that's what it was. And that's painful. And that's devastating. Because what that shows is almost like a, a collective laziness in the nation where we're failing to really grasp what's happening, where we're not doing the basic intellectual exercise of like, well, what if this was one of my loved ones? How would I feel? And, you know, you likely would feel complete and utter despair mixed in with seething anger of our inability to prevent this stuff and stop it from happening on a regular basis. And, you know, here's a thought that really got me. Stop and think about this. There's somebody out there. There are multiple people out there walking around right now living their lives. In the United States, going to work, going to the deli to pick up a sandwich, taking their kid to hockey practice, whatever it might be, and those people who are out there walking, eating, breathing, loving people, having friendships, going bowling, those people are going to be dead within the next six months from another mass shooting, and that's a guarantee. I could say two months, and that's probably true, but just for safety for the time span, I'm going out to six months. Within the next half a year, somebody's out there who's going to get murdered in a mass shooting, and they have no clue. They're just living their life right now, and their life is going to be snatched from them in the most evil, vicious way imaginable. We know that's going to happen, and the government's not doing dick about it. Now, is there a cure-all fix? I don't think there is. I don't. I don't think there's one thing that would guarantee that, like, we never have a mass shooting again. I mean, I guess if you did total gun confiscation, maybe, there'd still be a few instances of guns slipping through the cracks and somebody committing a crime with them. I'm sure. I'm sure of that. So you're never going to guarantee it. But we do know there are ways to drastically, colossally, monumentally reduce the number of gun deaths. And they're not going to do it. They're not going to do it. So that person who's out there right now walking around, just going about their business, and they're going to be gunned down within the next six months and murdered in cold blood, they have no idea. And nothing's going to be done to stop it, even though we definitely could take action that would drastically reduce the number of gun deaths. Now, you know, this is a poll going all the way back to 2016, but I want to show you nonetheless, because it's incredibly important. Take a look. So um, this is from Pew Research Center. I could have given you any of a number of polls, because they all show basically the same thing. But look at this. Background checks for private and gun show sales, 81% favorite. Prevent people with mental illness from purchasing guns, 76% favorite. Barring gun purchases by people on the federal no-fly or watch list. That one might have some civil liberties concerns and might be slapped down in court, but nonetheless, 71% wanted. it. Creating a federal database to track gun sales, 68% wanted. it. Ban on assault weapons. want it. For the record, there's another poll that came out much later, which now shows 60% of the American people want it. Ban on high-capacity ammunition clips. 50% want it, 47% don't want it. Again, to be fair, there's another poll that came out um, within the past year or two that has that number much higher. There are way more people who now support a ban on high-capacity magazines. Now, these are, you know, very basic things. Have, Have repeated routine mental health checks, testing, verification processes in order for somebody to get a gun. And it's supported across the board in the United States. What a lot of people are surprised to learn is it's not just Democrats. It's not just independents. It's not just the country. It's also Republicans. It's also gun owners. Average run-of-the-mill members of the NRA support many of these basic gun reforms. The only reason... We don't get them put into law is very simply because the leadership of the NRA takes money from and represents the gun manufacturers. The gun manufacturers are quite literally the only group of people in the United States of America that doesn't want some form of gun reform. So the leadership of the NRA represents the gun manufacturers. The leadership of the NRA pays the Republican politicians, and there are strings attached. And the idea is. Don't pass anything. Don't pass any new gun reform at all, no matter how basic it is, no matter how much, you know. In some instances, over 90% of the American people agree with universal background checks. Don't care. Don't do it. Don't do any of it. So basically, we have author- a democracy being subverted for authoritarian rule by moneyed interests. It's a very oligarchic, kleptocratic-type system, and that's what we have. The corruption has made it so that a very tiny group of moneyed interests control our gun policy, when, again, the people are crystal clear. I want to show you one more thing here, because this is incredibly important. Here's how to buy a gun in the U.S. versus New Zealand. So in the United States, you pass an instant background check that considers um criminal convictions, domestic violence, and immigration status, and then you buy a gun. So you can get a gun the same day. Very simple approach. Now, this doesn't even take into account the gun show loophole, where oftentimes there is no background check. Um, private gun sale, same thing. Take a look at New Zealand. This is what it's like in New Zealand. And this was a lot of this was just added to the law in New Zealand as a result of the massacre they had there. Pass a background check that considers criminal, medical, mental health, and domestic violence records. Provide character references. Authorities interview or advise in person your partner or next of kin. Pass a home security inspection that checks for proper firearm storage. Take a gun safety course. Wait for approval for a firearms license, which could take weeks or months, then buy a gun. Now, this article in the New York Times goes through what the process is in a bunch of developed countries. And what's fascinating is you'll see that in almost all of them, the process is a lot longer, a lot more complex, and it weeds out people a hell of a lot more. Now, this is where people say, well, you know, but criminals aren't going to follow the gun laws, so why even implement those laws? That's a very silly reaction because you could use that logic to argue against all laws. Well, I mean, the people who are murderers are not going to follow the anti-murder laws, so why even have murder laws? It's just, that's a really silly argument. But furthermore, it's about changing the numbers in the aggregate, and we know as a matter of fact that it will. So in other words, will there be some people who slip through the cracks, who end up getting guns and subverting the law in the process? Yes, but there will be many fewer people, that do that in a situation where we have intelligent, strong laws and we enforce them. So you understand? It's about cutting down the number of, of gun deaths and mass, shooting, and mass shootings in the aggregate, and that will happen. So in other words, we have about 32,000 people that die every year um, from gun, gun violence in the United States. Now, if we implement basic gun reforms, is that going to go down to zero? No. But if we implement basic gun reforms, can we potentially knock that down to 10,000 total gun deaths? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So that's a, many lives saved, 22,000 lives saved. Now, I'm just making those numbers up and pulling them at my ass. However, we know based on the evidence from other countries that it's a guarantee we will reduce the number of gun deaths For sure, if we take these actions, by the way, 32,000 is the number of gun deaths when you include homicides, suicides, accidents, and all forms of gun deaths. When you look at just homicides, it's 10,000 homicides per year in the U.S. Take another developed country, the U.K., 31 per year. 10,000 to 31. And it's not just a cultural difference. It's also a matter of the laws. So even if we say, okay, take the 10,000 um, homicides every year, with intelligent gun reform, can we knock that down to 5,000 and cut that number in half? Probably. You bet your ass will knock quite a bit of gun deaths off that for sure. So um, we're not asking for too much here, man. We're really not. We're really not. And it would drastically change. the way our country is working right now. I mean, it really is to the point where it's just like every few months, there's some sort of massive slaughter, and then nothing happens. And we'll get to the Republican reaction in a little bit. Deeply disingenuous, incredibly stupid, infuriating. They're blaming something that has absolutely nothing to do with it. But this is where we're at now. This is where we're at. It doesn't matter how many times I come out here and show you, hey, man, we all agree on these basic reforms. It doesn't matter how many times I hammer that point home. It doesn't matter how rock-solid the argument is that we're making. There's basically going to be a collective shrug in Washington, D.C., and they're going to do Dickie McGee's acts. And, of course, it goes without saying that... um, Perhaps a lot of the anti-immigrant rhetoric coming out of right-wing politicians um, should be reeled in a little bit, because this guy used a lot of that language, that honestly, keep it real, man, you hear on Fox News on a regular basis, The our country is being infested. Trump said that the other day, oh, Baltimore's infested. Well, you know, that's classic dehumanization language. Um... Trump and Fox News hosts refer to what's happening at the southern border as a, quote, invasion. Well, guess what? This guy calls it an invasion as well in his manifesto. So maybe you have to make clear that immigrants and refugees are human beings, and many of them are just trying to create a better life and work hard to support their families. The idea that they're like all bad, well, call it what it is. That's like the definition of racism and xenophobia and bigotry. He just thinks by virtue of their skin color, they are by definition evil. Therefore, I'm totally justified in massacring them. Has no idea that he's the evil one. Obviously, to anybody with a functioning brain, And also, a lot of the immigrants and refugees who are coming into this country through the southern border, they're coming here to escape the consequences of many U.S. policies that have ravaged their respective countries. And that's the truth. Absolutely. Whether it's our foreign policy and U.S. history in South America, I don't need to go into that for all you guys. You guys are educated on that topic. Um, Or whether it's the drug war in the absolute destruction of many of those countries to the south of us, where a lot of them are narco states. You know, if you, I believe Honduras and El Salvador, fact check me on this if I'm wrong, because I'm digging back in the memory bank here, but I think about two years ago I read a fact that living in those countries was more dangerous than being in Iraq at the height of the Iraq war, more likely to be killed in El Salvador or, or Honduras on any given day compared to being in Iraq at the height of the Iraq war. Think about that. And then people escape here to get away from, like, certain death, extreme poverty, or a narco gang obliterating them. They escape here, and what do we do? We slam the door in their face and we lecture them about waiting in line and go through the proper process. Well, what if the process is, oh, my God, I need asylum, so I'm going to show up, and then we'll deal with everything once we get there. What if that's the process? But there's been a lot of dehumanization of black and brown people, refugees, immigrants. And it's grotesque, man. And this is the logical consequence to that. You have people who... And a lot of those Republican politicians, I'm sure, would just... Like, they think, what do you mean? No, I'm just... Like, this is just me playing politics to try to get elected to say, I'm for America, and I'm for Americans, and I'm not for no damn illegals. And they use it as a tactic... But then the consequences of that are there's a lot of true Kool-Aid drinkers out there who really think, like, no, no, no. All of the people coming in this country are criminals, and they're rapists. And like Trump said in his launch speech, what did he say? "Uh, People coming in this country, they're criminals, they're rapists. I assume some are good people. So in other words, he flipped it. He said, like, most are criminals and rapists, and some are good people. It's the exact opposite. The overwhelming majority are normal people. They're good people. Only a tiny amount are, are, are criminals. So it... Anyway, Trump just gave a speech where he was like, you know, suddenly now he's like, me? Me? Oh, no, I'm totally presidential, bro. Listen, I'm against bigotry. I'm against racism. And we have to be clear that white supremacy is evil. Cut to a video that, you know from one of his rallies that was within the last month where somebody screamed to shoot them at the border. Somebody in the crowd screamed, shoot them at the border when they show up unannounced. And Trump laughed and then said, only in the Florida panhandle can you get away with saying something like that. Only in the Florida panhandle. Well, it turns out there are plenty of people out there who aren't joking. They really believe, no, 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 shoot them. Shoot them when they show up. And of course, in this instance, you have a mass shooter... Who doesn't even care about their immigration status. All he cares about is brown. They're brown. So they're bad. And they're stealing my future. You know? What everybody needs to understand is this is the oldest trick in the book. You have elites pointing the finger at poor and middle class black and brown people and convincing... White people, usually middle class or lower class, convincing them that all of your problems can be pinned on the black and brown people. They're the problem. They're taking all your money through welfare. They're stealing your jobs. By the way, I like that little contradiction there. What is it? Are they coming here working and stealing your jobs, so they're hardworking, or are they coming here and they're just sitting back and sipping a Coke and taking welfare money? Which is it? They don't care. The bottom line is, I have problems. I'm going to blame them. They're the root of all my problems, when in reality, we know damn well the root of everybody's problems in this country, pin it right back on the corruption, right back on the government being bought and owned by billionaires and corporations, and they rig the rules in their favor. The reality is, you have a hell of a lot more in common with those black and brown people you despise than you think you do. I mean, you guys need to be on the same team because the elites are dividing and conquering. But for a guy like this, obviously he was totally brainwashed and too far gone, and it's abysmal. We're not going to change everybody's mind overnight. There's still going to be vicious bigots and racists and xenophobes out there and people who are totally mentally unstable and on the brink of doing a mass shooting. We can't change their minds overnight, and some people are impossible to change what we can do is make it a hell of a lot less likely that they get their hands on the weaponry to carry out such an atrocity. Okay. All right, now let's go to the Republican response, and I... I think all of you are going to be pissed about this. I know I'm pissed about this. Um, all right, here we go. Kevin
2: McCarthy. Wait, do I have the final version of this? Rush Limbaugh, Michael Moore, John Eleni, Joe Biden, Jesse Waters, Bill Maher. Wait, I don't know if I have the final version.
1: I don't think I do. Let me see. It's okay. You know, we heard from the uh, No big deal. Alright, here. Sorry if this clip drones on a little bit. This isn't the final condensed version of it. So Kevin McCarthy is the Republican House minority leader and he weighed in on twenty nine people being massacred in a thirteen hour period, one in a mass shooting in Dayton. And another one in an El Paso Walmart from a white supremacist who made crystal clear, I want to kill brown people. Um, So, usually in a situation like this, well, I was going to say they'd be upfront about what happened, but no, they wouldn't. They would always deflect and obfuscate. But it's clear in this instance, especially in the El Paso shooting, it's the racism, it's the bigotry, it's the xenophobia. Um, it's a terrorist attack, and he was using you know, a weapon that he probably shouldn't have even had access to in the first place. So maybe those are the things we should put front and center. The ideology that drove him to do what he did and the fact that he was able to get his hands on uh, you know, an incredibly powerful weapon without much of a struggle at all. So that's, you know, maybe that should be front and center. No. Kevin McCarthy has a brilliant, uh, you know, scapegoat here that he wants to roll out for us.
3: You know, we heard from the uh, deputy uh, governor of Texas earlier, and he was talking, it was a very impassioned uh, conversation, really, and he was talking about the tone that the public uses on on social media, he was talking about video games, all of these things that could have triggered, certainly the video game situation he was saying may have triggered uh, the the shooter there in in El Paso. But, But what are your thoughts on that in terms of understanding that words matter and that when we're talking to each other on social media or looking at video games where they're using you know, uh, 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 videos of, uh, of characters with these uh, weapons. Is there a conversation to be had about that, about the tone that, that this country is using? It's become commonplace to say whatever you want to anybody on social media. Yeah. I
4: think we should. And you want to see from these individuals what they wrote in others, but, I mean, um, this may be a place that we could find this ahead of time. There may be a place of what what's being written um, can be changed to be an indication that an individual needs help and others that we can stop. But, but the idea of these video games to dehumanize individuals to um, have a game of shooting individuals and others, I've always felt that is a problem for um, future generations and others. Um, we, we've watched from studies as shown before of what it does to individuals. Um, when you look at these photos of how it took place, um, you, you can see the actions within video games and others. But what I'd like to do is make sure to just get all the facts where there are indications. And there's times before that we have found this, and there's times before that we've proven we could come together just yeah. in the last Congress.
1: That is such complete and utter horseshit, and it's infuriating. They have studied this, but the conclusion they came to is the exact opposite of what he's pretended. It's been proven that there is no link between violent video games and actual violence. You want to know why? Because people can tell the difference between using a fucking joystick and playing a game in real life. In the same way that, you know, when, when you go and watch Rambo... You don't immediately say, wow, I really want to go light up some motherfuckers with a machine gun. Nobody does that. Nobody does that because they know, oh, this is a movie. In the same way that when they play a video game, they go, oh, this is a video game. In fact, if anything, you could maybe make the argument. Now, I'm not sure if the data backs this up, so just understand this is a hypothesis. This hasn't been proven. But if anything, maybe it has the total opposite effect where you might have some people that have, some weird natural urges and inclinations toward violence, and they use this as an outlet to get out those weird, strange, bizarre feelings, those wrong feelings that they have. That is way more likely than what he's saying, because we know as a matter of fact that the argument he's making is the opposite of the truth. Because, I got news for you, they have video games in the UK, and they have video games in Japan, and let me take a look at their um, their death count compared to us. They have, like, none of the deaths we have. That's not fair. I think in Japan, maybe they have less than 10 gun deaths per year. Um, in the U.K., it's 31. Here, we have 10,000 homicides per year, 32,000 total gun deaths when you include homicide, suicides, accidents, so on and so forth. So you're wrong. You're wrong. And nobody's ever been more wrong. And this is scapegoating. This is deflecting. This is obfuscating because you want to change the discussion. And notice he did that. Why? Look at this clip. To this point, have we talked about the real problem at all? No. We've only talked about what is definitely not the problem, which is video games. And the thing that got me maybe even more mad is look at the lead in from Maria Bartiromo. She says, words matter.
5: And people are mean to each other on social media.
1: (laughs) Fox News, you want to talk about words matter? Fox News is incredibly vicious. And oftentimes they flat out lie about the Democrats and candidates they don't like. So it's true that words matter. But, I mean, you guys are like primary culprit if you're going to talk about how, oh, you should tone police and make sure you don't go too far in criticisms. But furthermore, I love how in their mind they think like, don't touch guns, Second Amendment. But what do they blame? First Amendment. We're too free. We use our voice too much. No, using your voice and arguing and strongly disagreeing, those are positive things. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing negative about that. Being mean to people on social media, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. I mean, you should try to be a good person, but if you're having a disagreement with somebody and you vehemently disagree, yeah. That's called freedom of speech. That's called being a human being and fleshing out ideas. So, Look at how terrible they are at deflecting. They want to protect guns, and they want to act like, you know, the the bigoted rhetoric that comes from the far right on a regular basis has nothing to do with this. So what do they do? Well, we're mean on social media to each other, and that's bad. We should all just hold hands and sing kumbaya and never argue and act like where you live in Leave It to Beaver. Um, And, ah, the video games. It's the goddamn video games. There are many times. I've played video games. I've played first-person shooters. Never once have I said, man, I really do have an urge to go to the local Arby's and do a mass shooting now. Never has that happened. Never will that happen because that's not the way this works. Think about how condescending and pedantic that is. I mean, the idea that (laughs) you would even think to make that link, to make that connection, I honestly find it beyond absurd. We spoke about it before, but the reality is you look at every poll on gun reform, basic gun reform, everybody supports. Not just Democrats, not Democrats and independents, Democrats, independents, and Republicans. It's overwhelming. In some polls, over 90% of the American people want a universal background check. And we can go on and on. You know, I just showed the poll before, but and this one's all the way back to 2016. The ones in 2017 and 2018 are even stronger in the direction of gun reform. But people say there should be mental health checks. You should regularly have to take a mental health test. People should have to vouch for you. There should be a ban on assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. And again, it's overwhelming. It's not even close. So it's almost like they know that this is the reality, and so they're doing everything they possibly can to do the mental gymnastics to deflect and divert from that very serious conversation and also try to deflect from the conversation that, We have the video. We've seen it time and time again. Fox News has referred to immigrants and refugees as an infestation and an invasion. The exact same language that this dude uses in his manifesto. So, you know, playing a role in the dehumanization of immigrants, that's a giant part of the problem, too. So maybe you should be intelligent And rational and reasonable in your coverage of immigration. How's that for an idea? So you let people know, hey, a lot of these these are just mostly good people just fleeing a horrendous circumstance and trying to save their lives and create a better future and work hard. A lot of these people are fleeing from the consequences of U.S. policies that destroyed the region, whether it be the drug war or foreign policy in terms of South America. I mean. You would think that giving those facts would be incredibly important on this topic, but no. The narrative nonstop is immigrants bad, immigrants bad, immigrants bad. And of course, the narrative on guns is guns always good. Any restrictions at all are a violation of the Second Amendment. And um, they have to do this dishonest deflection from the real conversations that we should be having. Because they know they can't engage in those conversations because they're wrong in those conversations. Okay. All right. Mainstream media came for Tulsi, and um, this is a long video, but you're going to enjoy it. So mainstream media clause for Tulsi Gabbard came out because, let's be honest, she absolutely obliterated Kamala Harris in the debates. I mean, she was an attack dog, and it worked. So um, they can't respond on the topic of the discussion, which is Kamala's record as a prosecutor. So instead, they go into Empire Strikes Back mode and... They smear nonstop. It is a long video, but it's well worth every second. These are most of the post-round, uh, post-debate uh, interviews that Tulsi did, and in almost all of these discussions, maybe flat out all of them, um, they portray it to her like, "Oh, let's talk about your criticism of Kamala. Let's, you know, let's have that discussion on Kamala's record as a prosecutor." And then as soon as she agrees to do the interviews. Is that the main focus of the interview? No. Oftentimes they just tag that on at the end of the conversation. But, like, anywhere from 60% to 80% of these respective interviews and conversations were focused on, take a guess, Syria and Assad. Watch.
6: This president has chosen to double down and triple down on the alliance with Saudi Arabia. A country that is the number one propagator of the uh, radical uh, uh, Wahhabi Salafist ideology that fuels terrorist groups like ISIS and Al Qaeda, uh, a country that both directly and indirectly supports Al Qaeda in countries like Yemen and Syria. Uh, and secondly, this president is uh, doubled down on support for Al Qaeda in continuing this regime change war in Syria, even threatening to use our own military uh, to respond to anyone who tries to attack al-Qaeda in the city of Idlib in Syria where they are in control of and have their stronghold. This is deeply concerning to all of us as Americans, but for me especially as a soldier who enlisted after the attacks on 9-11 to go after al-Qaeda, that terrorist group that took thousands of lives on September 11th, this is a huge betrayal to all of us, to all of our service members, to all of those first responders on 9-11, to every family that lost a loved one
3: on that day. Congresswoman, do you not believe that the same could be said for your meeting with Bashar al-Assad? I don't know how you could equate that. that We're you, talking that about you would a be meeting that is with, directly- That you would be meeting with the leader of Syria who could feasibly be responsible for the killings of over half a million people who ordered the chemical attacks on children in his own country? I
6: will never apologize for doing all that I can To prevent more of my brothers and sisters in uniform from being sent into harm's way to fight another regime change war, the likes of which we have seen in Iraq and Libya and Syria, that have taken so many of our service members' lives, that have taken so many of our taxpayer dollars out of the pockets of people in this country, people who are suffering, people in places like Detroit, like Flint, Michigan, communities across this country. What to speak of the suffering that's been caused? So, if that means meeting with a dictator, meeting with an adversary in order to accomplish that mission of keeping the American people safe, making sure our troops are not continuing to be sent on these wasteful wars, putting their lives at risk, and making sure we've got the resources for the American people I'll do what is necessary. And frankly, that's the kind of commander-in-chief we need that truly has the courage, just as we've seen in our country's past how, you know, President Kennedy met with Khrushchev how Roosevelt not only met with Stalin, a murderous dictator who killed millions of people, excuse me, sorry, let me finish, who met not only with Stalin, who killed millions of people, but actually allied with him. Why? Because it was in the best interest of our country and the American people to bring about an end to that war. So no, if it means
3: meeting with dictators, if it means working so with people who do people things like that we Khan find or as meeting with Bashar al-Assad, but not necessarily meeting with the leader, leader of Saudi Arabia or supporting, or, or, having, not... me- or, or having a relationship sure. with them.
4: Sure. You're you're you're
3: uh, making you're mixing two different things up. I'm talking about having a meeting. I, I, I don't think mixing for... two different things up. I'm just trying to get clarity on it because seems sure. to be some inconsistencies in your
6: views of there, it. There's no inconsistency whatsoever. Having a meeting for the pursuit of our national security and peace is one thing. I would meet with the leader of Saudi Arabia, with leaders of Iran, with leaders of North Korea in that pursuit of national security, keeping the American people safe. The difference between that and what Donald Trump has done and continues to do is he has cozied up, allied with, and supported Saudi Arabia in their support of Al-Qaeda and in support of
7: this genocidal war in Yemen that continues to this day. Good to see you. So I want to talk to you about Um, how you took and why you seemed obviously dissatisfied with uh, the senator's answers last night, what you think the state of play is after last night for you and the other Democrats, but I want to clear something up. You need to acknowledge that Bashar al-Assad is a murderous despot, Uh. and you can still make your argument that Uh the United States has no business risking blood and treasure in places where it should not be. I don't understand why you didn't give that answer last night. Uh, Well,
6: first of all, let's talk about what you're addressing here. And I I don't dispute anything that you're saying there. He's a brutal dictator, just like Saddam Hussein, just like Gaddafi in Libya. The reason that I'm so outspoken on this issue of ending these wasteful regime change wars is because I have seen firsthand this high human cost of war and the impact that it has on my fellow brothers and sisters in uniform. You know, Chris, I respect you because you've spent a lot of time – Throughout your career, shining a light on the challenges that veterans face when they come home, I will do anything and everything that I possibly can to stop sending our men and women in uniform into harm's way, fighting in these wasteful, counterproductive wars.
7: The notion deserves nothing but respect, Congresswoman. Deserves nothing but respect. I'm not disputing that. I think it's a legitimate claim. But here's what I'm asking. Even if you put yourself in a hole, let me
6: just finish. Let me finish. finish Let me finish this point because because it's, it's, essential, it's central to the question that you're asking. I will never apologize to anyone for doing all that I can to prevent more of my brothers and sisters in uniform from being sent into harm's way to fight in these wasteful, counterproductive regime change wars, even if it means meeting with a brutal dictator focused on that objective, keeping the American people safe, making sure my brothers and sisters in uniform are honored by only sent, being sent on missions that are worthy of their sacrifice and making it so that we stop wasting trillions of our taxpayer dollars on more of these wasteful wars when they are so needed right here at home to address the essential and urgent needs of
7: people in our communities, people like those here in Detroit. I take issue with none of that, none of it, do not make any other assumption about anything. I'm talking about one specific thing, all of that is completely valid and does not need any benefit to Bashar al-Assad. On your website, I don't understand why you have uh, information on there that questions the notion that Assad is responsible for things that the U.S. intel and the United Nations intel believe he's responsible for. You don't need to defend him to make your argument. I don't understand why you do. I've never defended. I've never defended Assad. What you're website, referring, questions to, the legitimacy what's of you're referring to are, are
6: cynicisms, uh, uh, a skepticism that I have expressed, because I've served in a war that was caused by people who lied to us, who lied to the American people, who presented false evidence that members of Congress and U.S. senators believed and voted for a war that resulted in the
8: loss of lives of over
6: 4,000 of my brothers and sisters in uniform.
8: Asked Kamala Harris about that exchange. She certainly seemed, I don't know, surprised uh, that I think she was not expecting that from you. The only thing that she said about you is she said that you were uh, essentially an apologist for Bashar al-Assad, that you would never criticize him as a, uh, a dictator or murderer.
6: I think it's unfortunate and a disservice to voters in this country that she resorts to cheap smears rather than actually addressing her record, the issues that I've raised, and the fact that she said she is proud of this record. If that's the case, then voters deserve to hear about why she's so proud of the lives that she has negatively impacted the families that she's torn apart in california
8: if uh if voters are wondering what is your take on Bashar al al-assad what do you say?
6: my take is one of the soldier. i've seen the cost of war firsthand in Iraq serving in a medical unit every single day confronted with that high human cost of war. So I will never apologize for doing all that I can to prevent more of my brothers and sisters from being sent into harm's way to fight counterproductive regime change wars that make our country less safe, that take more lives, and that cost taxpayers trillions more dollars. So if that means meeting with a dictator or meeting with an adversary, Absolutely.
4: You, I would do it. Do you
6: this consider is about the him national
8: security of our country? I understand that position. Do you consider him a, a torturer or a murderer? And that's not what this is about. I don't defend or apologize or have anything to do with what he has done since If you're President of the United States, it's fine if you want to meet with somebody, but uh, there is traditionally a role of the President of the United States calling out human rights abuses overseas. Bashar al-Assad sure. is head of a regime uh, which has disappeared many people as his – there's Here's, here's the head. way
6: that I look at him, The kind of leadership, the example of leadership that I follow is one where Kennedy met with and worked with Khrushchev to forge a deal that would keep the American people safe where obviously Reagan met with Gorbachev, Roosevelt met with Stalin, worked with Stalin, Uh, you know, Nixon met with Mao. These are the kinds of leaders who think about Things at a very practical and real level about how to keep our country right, and, killed, and
8: Killed, murdered 20 million people. That's I'm
6: my sure. point exactly. Right. Yet Roosevelt not only met with him, but he allied with him right. to bring about an end to that war.
8: But, but it, it, I'm sure you know Roosevelt would have acknowledged the cell and murdered the millions of people. You don't want to. I,
6: do, oh, I don't dispute that. Again, my focus. But you is, won't say
8: anything about that about Churchill. I,
6: I have. I've been very outspoken about this before. These are things that are being detract, being used as as detractions away from the central issue, which is we are still waging a regime change war in Syria today. We still have troops in Syria today, troops who are dying. That's my focus. That's why I'm running for president, to bring about this
0: sea change. In
6: I, I understand. The,
8: I, I hadn't planned to go down the road, but I understand the not wanting to get involved militarily, uh, and, and, and certainly as a veteran, you uh, have more work. a.
1: Oops. That had 20 seconds
8: left. not wanting to get involved militarily, uh, and, and certainly as a veteran you uh, have more of a than anybody to, to talk about that and have an opinion about it. Just, uh, on, just on a factual basis, Bashar uh, al-Assad is a murderer and a torturer. Do you not agree with that? Do you, you, I don't dispute that. You don't dispute that, okay.
1: There's a reason why Chris Cuomo, Anderson Cooper... Um, whoever that MSNBC host was, there's a reason why they're the ones who have shows on these networks. Because they're the ones who are going to be... Balloon! Balloon! Whatever they're distracted by, the shiny object, they'll chase that shiny object. Now, do yourself a favor. Go look at all the segments. They're endless, by the way, so you won't be able to do it. Look at all the segments criticizing Tulsi Gabbard on Syria. And then look at all the segments criticizing Kamala on her record as a prosecutor. There are roughly about 17,462 criticizing Tulsi on Syria, and probably less than five, and that's being kind. It might be like one or two criticizing Kamala on her record as a prosecutor. The original conversation, the reason why Tulsi... For most of these interviews, the reason why she was invited on was, oh, let's talk about your, you know, what you said about Kamala and whether or not you think she gave a solid answer, and we can get into that. And then most of the respective interviews were talking about Syria. Now, I'm not saying it's some sort of coordinated mustache-twirling conspiracy behind the scenes where like, all these mainstream media hosts get together and they say, we're going to defend Kamala, right? Yeah, we're going to defend Kamala and we're going to attack Tulsi. But again, that's why they were hired, because you don't need a formal backroom conspiracy. This is the groupthink that comes from these networks. The groupthink is, and Kamala even said it, oh, I'm a top-tier candidate, and she's like, nobody. The groupthink is Kamala serious, Tulsi not serious. You know, Kamala good, Tulsi bad. So even when the conversation is nominally supposed to be about, Kamala's abysmal record as a prosecutor, they immediately go to, hey, I'm going to bring up this thing that you responded to about 17 quadrillion times and bring it up as if it's, like, serious, real, and you haven't spoken about it yet. So, I mean, let's go through some of this. Um, The MSNBC host tried to say, oh, you're a hypocrite because you're criticizing Trump for de facto supporting al-Qaeda through Saudi Arabia, yet you spoke to Bashar al-Assad. The problem isn't Trump talking to Saudi Arabia. In fact, everybody on the left is in favor of dialogue, in favor of talking to Saudi Arabia, in favor of talking to all these different countries. The problem is the material support of Saudi Arabia and then by extension, Al-Qaeda. That's the problem. The problem is we're arming a vicious terrorist regime. That's the problem, the arming of them. Tulsi Gabbard wasn't going to meet Assad, to hand him over, you know, a fresh batch of of uh, anti-tank missiles, she was meeting because she was pursuing diplomacy and peace. Now, you could say, hey, she's in Congress, it wasn't, I don't know why she did that, it was, um, you know, it wasn't her role, well, that's all fine and dandy, but am I offended? Am I mad? No, I wish that somebody went in, you know, 2002, right before we invaded Iraq and, went after Saddam. I wish you had U.S. Congress people going over there for peace, to de-escalate. I wish we had that. I wish we had it with Gaddafi. So I'm not mad at her for wanting to avoid a war and regime change in a country where the next... Who would fill the vacuum if Assad's gone? Answer, jihadists. Because 60% of the rebels, according to a study from two or three years back, um, are jihadists. So am I mad at her for going to talk to the head of a government no not at all not at all not even close so what a red herring what a terrible argument oh aren't you a hypocrite because you spoke to assad sure trump is arming and backing al-qaeda and a terrorist regime but aren't you a hypocrite because you spoke to a world leader no not at all i want trump to speak to world leaders just like i gave him credit for talking to kim jong-un What I don't want is materially arming them and backing them and helping them carry out their atrocities like we're doing in Yemen right now. So what a terrible argument. And then the Chris Cuomo one was, hey, okay, I get it, so you're not in favor of of war. However, why don't you just agree with the logic of the Pentagon and the CIA completely and then at the very end say, but I don't agree with war. So in other words, every little bit of the propaganda against the Assad government, agree with all of it, and then you could pull up short and say – But but no war Listen, I've seen this play before The same thing happened in Iraq Where it got to the point where The strongest voices against the war in Iraq They would have to say Oh yes, no, 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 yes Don't get me wrong Saddam Hussein is a monster Saddam Hussein is a a vicious dictator Saddam Hussein massacred his own people With our support, but don't say that part Saddam Hussein um, violated all these UN resolutions Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction But but, please don't go to war. So, in other words, agree completely with the logic of war and then say, but I don't agree with the conclusion. Do you not see how that also helps build the case for war? Now, I'm not saying you can't say that which is true. You absolutely can. So, you know, if she says, hey, according to some experts, they say Assad to the guest, tax. Totally fine. I would have no problem with that whatsoever. However... What you never hear in mainstream media is, again, there's also evidence that the jihadist rebels use poison gas as well. And just so everybody knows, jihadist rebels, it's not like, you know, oh, you could take their word at everything they say and they're freedom fighters and they're just purely the good guy, but that's how it's all portrayed in U.S. media. The rebels are just freedom fighters who are trying to topple a dictator and set up a Jeffersonian democracy, and. That's the portrayal, but that is not true. That's the comic book version. That's the propaganda version, and what Chris Cuomo wants is Tulsi Gabbard to say, I agree with everything the Pentagon says and the CIA says, and they're pushing for regime change, but I agree with everything they say, but I'm not, I'm not, against, I'm not for uh, intervention. Well, no. She's an independent thinker, and she's going to say, hey, I agree with this part. Notice, she admitted, she said, I think he's a brutal dictator. Boom, there you go, and she said it repeatedly. So it's not like she's willing to say what she thinks is factually true, full stop. But they try to portray her as like, oh, you have this irrational love of this brutal dictator. This is the exact same thing that people said about so many politicians in 2003 in the lead-up to the Iraq war. They said, oh, my God, you love Saddam Hussein, this brutal dictator, and you're just, you know, you're some sort of really evil, fanatical crazy person because you're supporting this terrorist regime, this this rogue dictator. How dare you? When in reality, the nature of all of the of all of those critics was, let's be independent-minded, let's be objective, let's be rational, let's not rush to war. Let's not immediately believe everything we're told by intelligence agencies. And that's what Tulsi's doing in the case of Syria, and she's getting smeared relentlessly for it. And then, listen, Here's the, here's the bottom line. That entire time in all those conversations, she was supposed to be talking about Kamala's record as a prosecutor. They barely touched on it at all, very little. Now, in the clip, you didn't see them touch on it literally at all, but there were some parts later on where they did talk about it, but it was, just, it was quick. It was in and out, done. And I'm going to leave you with the reality on that. Kamala Harris laughed at the idea of legalizing marijuana in 2014. 2014, that's not that long ago. 2014, man. Her Republican opponent supported legalizing recreational marijuana. She laughed at it and scoffed at it and acted like, oh, please. It's like fairy tale idea. It's ridiculous. Kamala Harris, maybe the worst part of her record, in my opinion, she supported civil asset forfeiture. Civil asset forfeiture is legalized robbery by cop. They can just jack your property and your money and say, I think you were going to use it in a crime so I could just take it and I flip the burden of proof and you have no recourse. She supported that. Why? Because Kamala Harris is a cop. So that's incredibly important to talk about these things. It's incredibly important to talk about the fact that there was a memo uh, where her own staff told her, you should go after Steve Mnuchin for what he did with One West Bank for closing on you know, elderly people early against the law, and she decided, I'm not going to go after Steve Mnuchin, and she had also taken donations from Steve Mnuchin. I mean, the list goes on and on, man. The fighting to keep the wrongfully convicted behind bars, this is all stuff that she did. And none of the conversation was about that. Why? Because the media has their favorites, and their favorites are the safe establishment candidates who give nominal change, like, oh, wow, a black woman. We might have the first black female president. That's wonderful. They use the nominal, nominal change, the surface-level change, but they like the status quo maintenance in terms of the politics. So that's Kamala Harris to a T, and that's their philosophy. Now, they don't realize they have a philosophy. They don't realize they have an ideology, but they do. The philosophy that permeates through these mainstream media networks is it's a pro-establishment bias. It's a pro-centrism bias. So they're fine with being kind and good to minorities and, you know, talking about identity politics all the time. What they're not fine with is real fundamental systemic change, like ending the wars, like Medicare for All, like the Green New Deal. So... Just understand that this is what's going on and it, it was just you could have predicted it beforehand if you're if you've been following politics for a long time, but you knew that as soon as Kamala Harris, on a national stage in front of millions of people, kneecapped their girl Kamala, you knew that they were just gonna go for Tulsi's throat, and you knew it was gonna be vicious, and you knew it was gonna be substance I mean, listen, I have criticisms of Tulsi Gabbard, I've made them crystal clear. There's plenty of stuff, plenty of things about her where I cringe and I hate it, like the BDS vote. You know, she was, she agreed with the official condemnation of BDS. Inexcusable. The equivocating on torture. When the torture report came out, she says she hadn't read it yet. I don't care. Either way, you don't equivocate on torture. Inexcusable. There's plenty of stuff that I say, whoa, those are legit criticisms of her. What you just heard right there is not at all legitimate criticism. What you just heard right there is an attempt to smear a candidate and take her down because – she was successful in exposing one of their beloved candidates. Okay. Let me do one more, then we're going to take a break. This one should be relatively quick. So let me show you a map of the before and after for most searched Democratic candidate on Google. So this was before the second debate. You have Biden by a mile, by a mile, just by so much. Then you have Tulsi, then Kamala. Okay, and then let's take a look at after the debate. It's Tulsi in every single state. Tulsi in every single state. Now, if I'm not mistaken, the last time she was on the debate stage, the same thing happened. She was the most searched candidate. Now, why do you think that is? I have an answer. (laughs) You know, my answer is she hasn't been on the stage with Bernie at all. um, And every time she's on stage, she is the most interesting candidate of the lot that's on stage. She is the one willing to take the positions that others aren't willing to take. Um, she is the one that's eviscerated Tim Ryan on the issue of war, eviscerated Kamala on her record as a prosecutor. So, yeah, you know what the logical reaction to that is? People go, if they don't know her, they go, hmm, who's this? Let me read some more. So that's my answer. You want to know why? Occam's razor. Maybe people looked her up because they thought she's the most interesting and I'm, I want to see more about her. Couldn't get a more simple, straightforward, obviously true answer. Well, mainstream media goofballs disagree. Here's what Seth Abramson said. This guy's, I believe, a writer at Newsweek. He says, as these startlingly different maps suggest, there's a concerted far-right effort, possibly involving foreign actors, to bolster Tulsi Gabbard. I'm not blaming Gabbard for this, and I don't think anyone should, but we also have to be honest about what's happening. Except you just made that up so you're not being honest about it you just made it up you can't fathom that somebody finds her genuinely interesting because you don't find her genuinely interesting so you're projecting and saying well everybody agrees with me and likes me and has my establishment sensibility so obviously people can't look her up in good faith because they're interested in what she said it has to be and i quote a concerted far-right effort Possibly involving foreign actors, you know what that one means, right?
5: Russia! Oh, Russia! Blame Russia for everything we don't like.
2: Do you hate illegal and offensive wars? Well, Russia, thank you for doing their bidding.
1: (laughs) I'm so tired of this, man. Because they're so lazy. They don't even come up with points that give me pause. They don't even come up with points where I go, hmm, damn, that's a good argument. Let me look further into this and see if it's true. They, only, they just hit you with the most absurd, comical, caricatured media narrative imaginable. That she's some sort of, now the new conspiracy is she's like a Manchurian candidate and she'll run as an independent if slash when she drops out of the Democratic race. All of this is made up. They don't know. They have no idea what they're talking about. A far-right effort. Where's your evidence? It's a far-right effort, possibly involving foreign actors, to bolster Tulsi Gabbard. It most certainly is not that she had really good moments on the debate stage, like when she obliterated Tim Ryan in the first debate and when she obliterated Tulsi's or, or Kamala's record as a prosecutor in the second debate. It can't be that because I don't like that, so other people must not like that. Not everybody is you, Seth Abramson, with your ridiculous establishment sensibilities. These guys, in order to be in mainstream media, there is, the group think is so strong that they look at people like me and they're like, they think I'm just way beyond the pale. And But what's hilarious is when you actually look at my record of predictions, I would put my record against anybody's record of predictions. So even though I'm right about stuff, constantly, no matter what, immediately up front, it's just dismissal and laughter (laughs) that's what it is but they're like they're just sitting there basking in the scent of their own farts acting like they nailed it and they didn't nail it and they're ridiculous people and to anybody who's really objective about following politics they look at stuff like he just said here and they go oh my god you're the ridiculous one as you smugly assume that like the outsiders are the ridiculous ones See, this is what happens when you take down one of their beloved candidates who they really have pinned their hopes on for the establishment centrists to, to move forward. This is what happens. You take out that candidate, and, man, do they get vicious and do they get silly. I like the weird you know, little attempt to deflect criticism at the end when he's like, no, I'm not blaming Tulsi, but what I am saying is there might be a foreign effort to you know, really bolster her, and you know, there might, there's a far-right effort as well. I'm not saying it's her fault, but I am saying that, you know, she's a, a candidate that nobody's actually genuinely interested in, obviously. It's embarrassing, man. It's embarrassing. And, of course, you want to talk about fake news? Here's fake news. And there's no consequences for it. None at all. None at all. Not even close. Nobody will mention anything to him and say, hey, man, reel it in a little bit. You need evidence. You need facts to make these claims. Nope. None of that will happen. So that's why you come here to to get your political conversation and and news, because (laughs) at least you know I'm not this guy. All right take a break. When we come back, Bernie absolutely dunks on Liz Cheney, which is enjoyable. And then uh, the New York Times does an interactive map on who has the most individual donors. You'll never guess who it is. So stay right there. We'll be back with all that and more. All right, welcome back to the show. Um, Let's talk about America's dad, Bernie Sanders, and how he absolutely, casually obliterated Liz Cheney. Okay. So America's dad, Bernie Sanders, just absolutely dunked on Liz Cheney, and then Twitter joined in on the fun. This is like a a Vince Carter in his prime dunk. If you don't understand what that means, do yourself a favor, go to YouTube. You're already on YouTube, but open up another tab and um, type in Vince Carter dunk compilation. You will not be disappointed. One time he dunked over, I think it was like a seven-foot dude. If I'm not mistaken, it was at the Olympics. He straight-up jumped over like a 7-foot dude. Unbelievable. Just A-plus stuff. Well, that's what Bernie did to Liz Cheney, and it, it's beautiful. So here, Liz Cheney said the following, talking about the idea of the U.S. not offensively nuking people. Now, I want you to digest that for a second. To say hey, I think the U.S. shouldn't offensively nuke people, I file that under the duh category. (laughs) I file that under common sense. Because if you don't agree with that, what you're saying is, hey, maybe we should unprovoked be able to massacre hundreds of thousands or millions of innocent people. That's what you're saying if you disagree with that notion. If you say we should offensively nuke people or keep it on the table, what you're saying is, hey... Maybe unprovoked, we, we should be able to massacre hundreds of thousands or millions of people. Now I'm not surprised that Cheney takes that position. However, it doesn't make it any less loathsome. It's probably one of the dumbest ideas I've ever heard ever. So Elizabeth or Liz Cheney says about Elizabeth Warren on this, because Elizabeth Warren came out for the common sense position on that. Key question for Elizabeth Warren today. Which American cities and how many Americans are you willing to sacrifice with your policy of forcing the U.S. to absorb a nuclear attack before we can strike back? Hey, Liz, I got news for you. Nobody's going to nuke us. Nobody. See, this is the old the old Cheney playbook. Fear! Be afraid! Be afraid! You'll wake up tomorrow and somebody's going to nuke Toledo. No, the thing you should actually be worried about is what just happened uh, yesterday or two days ago, which is two mass shootings in a 13-hour time span, one of them a white supremacist terror attack in El Paso, the other one a mass shooting that killed nine people in Dayton, Ohio. That's what you should be worried about. Not like, oh, my God, Kim Jong-un went after Nebraska. (laughs) Not going to happen, not even close, not even entertaining the idea. If you think that's the case, you're an idiot, and you know nothing about history. You know who the only country is to ever use a nuke? I'll wait. (laughs) It's us and we use it against Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and we killed so many civilians. So it's just, I always find it hilarious that the only country to ever use nukes, and we used it and massacred civilians, is now all of a sudden, like, feigning outrage when other countries, uh, you know, even talk about developing them. Never mind, hey, I'm going to develop this and use it. They never say that. Any country that's going to develop them, we're like, oh, how could you? We need to keep everything in control here because, obviously, we're the good faith actors. And, you know, hey, man, you guys aren't ready to use that kind of technology, all right? Says the only country that ever used it and killed people, including civilians. Okay, but I digress from that. So Liz Cheney went after Elizabeth Warren and said, How many American cities, how many
9: Americans are you willing to let die?
1: (laughs) So America's dad, Bernie Sanders, pops into the conversation and quote tweets that and says, Taking national security advice from a Cheney has already caused irreparable damage to our country. We don't need any more. Thanks. Hot diggity damn, son. Woo! <laughs> wow. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Destroyed her in one fell swoop. Well, um, Liz Cheney... Responds to that, because she wants to be obliterated some more. She says, look at how weak this is. No surprise, commie Bernie Sanders, uh, who honeymooned in the Soviet Union, is okay with the U.S. getting attacked first. On a side note, he seems to have daddy issues. With my daddy. Liz Cheney is a special kind of stupid, because she is the kind of person who's silly enough to believe that when she's preaching to her own little choir of far-right-wing, bloodthirsty neocon thugs, that somehow this is landing with average people. No, what you said makes average people roll their eyes. Only your merry band of idiot neocon thugs is, is, you know, clapping over this one. Commie Bernie Sanders,
7: daddy issues with
1: my daddy. So, Twitter didn't take kindly to this. Look at <laughs> look at some of the responses. This is absolute mortal combat, flawless victory, fatality stuff. Your daddy helped lie America into a war where over 4,400 of our brothers and sisters died. He still has not even offered an apology. We all have issues with him. Vote vet said that. Max Socall says, if you think Bernie has issues with your daddy... Wait till you hear about the International Criminal Court.
0: <laughs>
1: and then Rich E. says, A lot of people have daddy issues with your daddy. It's because their daddies died fighting an unnecessary war that your daddy lied to get our country into. Damn. By the way, the carnage continues. Under that, it's just nonstop obliterating Liz Cheney. She appears to be unaware that her dad had, like, a 20% approval rating by the time he left office, and he never recovered. Okay, George W. Bush actually recovered a little bit. He bounced back. Dick Cheney, to my knowledge, I've never seen a poll where he bounced back. You want to know why? Because everybody looks at him like he's Darth Vader, because he is. You know, there's a lot of speculation, probably merited, I think, that really the person who was steering the ship was Dick Cheney. George Bush, and I'm not excusing George W. Bush at all here, but what I am saying is he could have been the useful idiot that a guy like Dick Cheney was controlling every step of the way. And Liz Cheney has that, like, that, that totally unearned, smug arrogance about herself as if she's not also wrong on every single issue because she's just trying to copy her daddy, okay? The only person here with daddy issues, Liz, is you. You're trying to be a carbon copy of your daddy, which, in a world that made sense, would land you in The Hague. Okay. Ate some pancakes during the break, by the way. I'm eating another one now. Having a pancake without syrup and butter is, like, damn near criminal. So I'm damn near committing a crime at this moment. Also eating it with my hand is probably not cool, but what are you going to do?
0: Mmm... Yummy in my tummy.
1: All right, this interactive map story is hilarious, and I love it. All right, here we go. So the New York Times did an interactive map on individual donors going to the different Democratic candidates. And this was to like give you an idea of the real grassroots support that's out there for the various candidates. Because probably, I would argue, the number one sign of grassroots support is this. How many grassroots individual donors do you have? Because this is not just people who support you This is regular people, middle-income folks, low-income folks, who are donating to you because they believe in you that much. So um, let's take a look at the first map we have here. Now, for those of you who are just listening, I'll describe what it looks like. Um, It's all Bernie Sanders. Like, literally, you have Bernie everywhere, and then just little pockets of other candidates only in the states where they come from so like bet on my stork has a bunch of individual donors from texas because he's from texas joe biden has delaware um who else we got is that cloud boot jar for up there i can't see it very well yeah it is it is cloud boot jar um cloud boot jar for her state we have I don't think you could see it, but you have, um, if they were to zoom in, you have uh, Buttigieg is very uh, popular in Washington, (laughs) D.C. So it's like, it's Bernie everywhere, and then just the areas where the other candidates are from is where they have small-dollar donors. So this is so overwhelming that the New York Times... Had to offer an interactive map that just flat out excludes Bernie, because <laughs> you couldn't you couldn't see where the grassroots support was coming from for the other candidates, unless you got rid of Bernie, who overshadows everybody, and his color in the map is just that much more um, that much more pervasive. So when you do that, you can see that now. You know, the map gets a little bit more complicated and a little more interesting. Um, But you get a lot of uh, Elizabeth Warren. You get a lot of Elizabeth Warren when you you do that. So I I just think it's incredibly awesome that you have... Bernie's dominance is so overwhelming... That the New York Times had to offer another option for the interactive map to even give you an idea of how the other candidates are doing, because if they didn't do that, you would just walk away going, "Well, Bernie's—it's it's Bernie all day, every day, in virtually every place except the places where the respective candidates are from." It, it honestly reminds me a little bit of like, like Tiger Woods' uh, dominance when he was number one in the world for some, like, insane, insanely long amount of time, he basically more than doubled the number of points between him and the number two golfer in the world. Um, and, like, it would be, like, Tiger at 20 points, and then you'd have, like, Phil Mickelson at, like, 8. And then everybody underneath him would be, like, you know, 7.89, 7.62. So he's just like, he's more than double as good as everybody else. And that's kind of what you see with Bernie here. He just crushes it so thoroughly with individual donors that they needed to develop another map to even show you how the other candidates are doing. I absolutely love that. Keep it up. I'm one of those individual donors, and I'm proud to be. Okay. All right, next. All right, Hansy Uncle Joseph made it into today's show, which he should be um, thankful for. He decided to um, put his middle finger up to millennials yet again. So Joe Biden, also known as Hansy Uncle Joseph, um, doubled down on his millennial bashing. He's a well-known millennial basher. You're going to hear one of his old quotes brought up to him in this interview. Um, This is with the Huffington Post. Now, yet again, Biden is going to make one of the dumbest political moves of all time. Let's take a look.
3: In January, you gave an interview and you talked about how, that you've heard from some people in the younger generation about how tough things are, and you said, I have no empathy for it, give me a break. Do you, I was hoping you could explain that comment. And do you think that people,
10: younger people today, have the same opportunities that people in your generation do? Or are there structural barriers or exactly? That? Well, let me tell you what I meant by that. I was at a university, I taught at University of Pennsylvania, University of Delaware. And I was being told, uh, things are tough, we're not going to be involved. When I did a commencement speech, Three years ago, I was told by at that particular speech that uh, just before that, the university had just done a study, and only 17%. They all—they're the most, they most, uh, how can I say it? The most progressive generation, the best educated generation in American history, the most open generation, the most generous. But only 17% said they'd be willing to run for public office. And the kids raised hands and said, "I don't want to run because it's so bad." I said, "Give me a break." My point is that. We got up, our generation, prior to that, my generation, just prior to it, said, go to Haight-Asbury, drop out, don't be involved, don't get engaged. And we said we've had enough, enough. We have an obligation to get engaged, and y'all have an obligation to get engaged. So I make no fuss. Get engaged. Be involved. Don't tell me how bad it is. Change it. Change it. Change it. My generation did. We ended. We got the Civil Rights Act passed. We moved into women's women, The whole across the board. So I just don't want to hear people telling me on a college campus, well, it's me, I have all this, but, you know, I'm not going to get involved because it's bad. And,
1: come on. Somebody made a great point on Twitter. They said it's almost like Joe Biden is endorsing Bernie Sanders, or at the very least endorsing not voting for him. He's like, don't complain. Get involved. If you want to change stuff, change stuff. Yeah, well, Joe, I got news for you. You are the candidate of the status quo. You're the candidate of centrism. You're the candidate of business as usual. Bernie Sanders is the candidate of change. Bernie Sanders is the candidate that when young people get involved, that's who they're going to (laughs) support. So it's almost, he doesn't even realize it, but it's almost like he's endorsing not voting for him. Now, the other thing is, His story that he told there, he said only 17% of young people said they were willing to run for office. That's an incredibly high number. So almost 2 out of 10 said, I'm willing to run for office? Dude, that's a lot. And that might be more than, if that question was ever asked historically earlier, that might be more than in the past. What a weird thing to say. And then furthermore, to the extent that people don't want to get involved, like, what he's failing to grasp is, Well, maybe people – there are some people in the younger generation who feel apolitical, but the reason they feel apolitical is because they know the system is so corrupt and so broken and so disgusting that they don't want to suck it up and vote for the lesser of two evils from now until the end of time. Now, you can disagree with that, but categorize their feelings accurately. It's not like out of laziness or something that they're like, I don't want to go vote. It's out of, like, disgust at the corruption in the system and the broken system and the fact that they don't think they've been represented accurately to this point. So, um, but again, this is where we come full circle to the conversation about Bernie Sanders. Joe is right when he says, hey, man, if you don't like it, get involved. But the way you would get involved is to partake in the exact movements that he's against. See, that's the thing, is... He brings up, like, my generation, we were involved, bro. We did the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement. Now, Joe, for civil rights, you were against uh, buffing desegregation. You worked with segregationists and then bragged about it. So you were on the wrong side of that, let's be clear. But also, the movements that are analogous to today, like what would you say is the movement that's analogous to the civil rights movement and the women's rights movements of the past. There's a lot of answers to that and a lot of good answers to that. I would argue the anti-war movement. You know, We're an empire that's bombing eight different countries, waging a shadow war in Africa. We're still in Iraq. We're still in Afghanistan. Many of these wars are illegal and offensive in nature. So the anti-war movement is kind of akin to the old civil rights movement and the women's rights movement. Um, I would argue the movement to get Medicare for all to get universal health care. I would argue that that's a, a movement that's in the spirit of Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement. I would argue free college or student debt cancellation. I would argue the movement on climate change, the movement um, for a Green New Deal, the movement to legalize recreational marijuana and free the nonviolent drug offenders. So in other words, Joe, all these movements, you're scolding the millennials, to get involved, get involved, get involved, get involved. They would get involved and be involved in these movements and you're actively against these movements you're not in favor of medicare for all you're not in favor of ending the wars so careful what you wish for there fella be very careful what you wish for there but yeah in the past what did joe say i have no empathy give me a break he said well joe listen man the millennial generation we were dumped into an economy that was in the midst of a great recession okay subprime mortgage crisis great recession student debt up to our eyeballs Job opportunities where people either don't have an opportunity or they're massively underemployed. Um, this generation can't really afford, like Joe Biden's generation did, like a house. You know, the, the old-school view of the American dream of like a oh, white picket fence and a dog and a and a house and so. You guys, the older generations, really kind of fucked everything up, and then they hand it off to us, and then they start scolding us. (laughs) It's like, you guys sent us to Iraq. You guys sent us to Afghanistan. You guys, you know, have a broken system for higher education. You guys have a a Wall Street and financial system that's screwing everybody nine ways to Sunday. And then you turn around and blame us and scold us? Listen, all I'll say is this. If you're somebody who's part of the millennial generation, if you're a younger person out there, don't be silly. This guy's letting you know what his philosophy is. And I got news for you. His philosophy is really not in favor of you and not in favor of the change you want to see. And he can't give a good answer on this question because he genuinely doesn't have sympathy Uh, for the younger generation, even though his generation kind of screwed up the country and then tried to hand it off to us. So just be aware of who your friend is, who your ally is, and who isn't. Ask Bernie Sanders about millennials, and look at his answer. His answer, will it'll all be totally accurate, and it'll be about how, hey, this is the most forward-thinking generation. This is the generation that's not, you know, totally cynical, and, and they think we can create a better future We can have a social democratic system. We can do Medicare for all. Look at Bernie's answer on millennials versus Joe Biden's answer, and then you'll see everything you want to know about this topic. Joe can't stop shoving his foot directly in his mouth, and Bernie can't stop winning. All right, let's go to, um, Bill Maher and, you know, what's happened to him. So Bill Maher is, uh, he's getting worse and worse as time goes by. He's shifting further to the right and, um, I'm going to show you some of his new. There's going to be two clips in one here. One from the overtime on his show, and then one from his new rule segment. Um, there was a time. Now you could argue I was just getting involved in politics, and so I didn't know as much at the time. But there was a time I really liked Bill Maher, um, and he was even, honestly, pains me to say this at this point because now, you know, I disagree with the guy way more than I agree with him, but. He was one of the reasons I even got involved in politics to the extent I got involved in politics. Um, I remember when I was a kid, and I I would see his... Late at night, he would have Politically Incorrect, his original show. I think it was on Comedy Central originally, and then ABC. And, um, And then later on, he's been on HBO for a while now, for a really long time, actually. But I liked him at one point. And, you know, before everybody jumps down my throat about that, allow me to say... It was really the stuff on the Iraq War that first got me interested in what he had to say because he was incredibly tough on the Bush administration and really, really, really vocally anti-Iraq war. And I thought that was really cool, and I thought he was right about that stuff. So I liked him a lot. And then it has been a gradual but sure decline into just becoming honestly one of the hackiest pundits out there. So let's look at some of the points he made um, this past week, and then we'll discuss.
11: The voters that Democrats need to win, moderates who have Trump fatigue, will vote against the good economy, I think, just to get back to normalcy. But they won't trade it away for left-wing extremism. You say you want a revolution? Well, you know... got to get elected first <laughs> and this election and this election is about two things fatigue and fear we have fatigue he has fear fear of socialism fear of open borders fear of getting rid of private health insurance fear of higher taxes he's running on the Communists are coming shit yourself. We should run on, elect me, and we can stop talking about him. All the Democrats have to do to win is to come off less crazy than Trump, and of course they're blowing it. Coming across as unserious people who are going to take away all your money, so migrants from Honduras can go to college for free and get a major in America sucks. Isn't the Fed cutting rates now just going to make the next economic downturn worse? What's your prediction? I've been hoping for a recession. People hate me for it, but it would get rid of Trump, so you shouldn't hate me for it.
7: I mean, recessions are really bad. People lose their jobs and I know we shouldn't waste.
11: Worth it? But. uh,
1: What do you even say in response to that? I mean, the whole reason I'm against Trump is because I think Trump's decisions really hurt Americans. So that's why I oppose Trump, because on policy, he's terrible, and that has negative consequences that hurts people. For Bill Maher to say something like, I'm rooting for a recession, and then when somebody says they're really terrible and people lose their jobs and and it has a lot of negative consequences— and he's like, I don't care if it's worth it. Then what? What Bill Maher is telling you there is, in no uncertain terms, he's saying I care more about being anti-Trump than I care for the American people doing well and thriving and being happy. That's what he's telling you. And again, it's in no uncertain terms. So for me. Politics is the means to an end, the end being everybody thriving and, and and being happy and being prosperous like that's what politics is For him, he's letting you know I prioritize playing for my team and being against the other team more than I prioritize the well-being of Americans. So to which I would respond to Bill Marvin, why even be involved in politics? I mean if that's if that's as deep as your you know connection to politics goes why not just only care about sports where you can actually root for a team and be against the other team and there's no like moral dimension to it like here it's almost like you're you're announcing to the world i'm an immoral prick because i care more about getting rid of trump than i care about the american people thriving but bill the whole reason i'm against trump is because i want the american people to thrive What you're saying is it's okay for the American people to be in a shitty situation as long as that guy Trump is gone. See, this is what happens when you've been involved in politics for so long, and you're just, at this point, you're just massively disconnected. And listen, he's really wealthy, you know, and that's not, there were times when Bill Maher was wealthy, but he also made sense, like on the Iraq War, (laughs) back when it was Bush, but now it's just, his partisanship has, basically, it overrides anything else. If that makes sense. So, this is just embarrassing to see, rooting for a recession. Now, don't get me wrong, a recession is going to happen. There's no doubt about it. It's a fact. I mean, our economy is a house of cards. But to actively wish for it to tank and being okay with harm on other people simply so you could say, I score one against Trump, I mean, that's, that's just pathetic, man. That's just pathetic. Um, Now to the other part that was in his new rule segment. He says, well, listen, Democrats need to win moderates in order to win the election. And so they just need to come across as more sane and normal than Trump. And somehow they're failing. Bill, look at the polls, man. Look at the polls. The American people overwhelmingly want Medicare for all. They overwhelmingly want free college. They overwhelmingly want a living wage. They overwhelmingly want to end the wars. They overwhelmingly want to legalize marijuana. This idea of, like, there's liberal, there's conservative, and there's moderate, and Democrats need to win moderates, so they got to, like, be sane and run to the middle. That's just a fundamental misunderstanding of politics. Perhaps what people want is to actually be offered something, to be offered something that makes sense, to be offered a vision to improve the country and fix our problems. And perhaps the way to improve our country and fix our problems is to unapologetically embrace a left economic vision. In order for Democrats to win, you know what they need to do? First and foremost, you got to turn out your base. That's rule number one of politics. Rule number one. And the Republicans never violate that rule. They're always throwing red meat to their base. The Democrats are always spitting in the eye of their base. So how about, for once, we run an election where the Democrats don't spit in the eye of their base. Look at Hillary. All she did was spit in the eye of her base, and turns out she didn't win the election. So maybe the answer is to run an anti-Hillary campaign, to be unapologetically on the left. So the idea is not just get moderates. The moderates will come if you have a left populist vision, because you're going to hold your own base with a left populist vision. You are going to get the moderates, and even you're going to get some people who were pro-Trump, but now they see the folly in their ways, and they said, I thought this guy was a populist himself and was going to fight outsourcing, and he didn't do it. So the way to win is basically the opposite of what Bill Maher is telling you to do. He says, oh, everybody has Trump fatigue, and all they want is like a return to normalcy. So in other words, what he's saying is, do the same thing Hillary Clinton did. Hillary's campaign was all Trump bad, Trump bad, Trump bad. I will maintain the status quo. I'll be the normal president. And what happened, Bill? He's just so disconnected. And then he even feeds into the right-wing smear and lie that Democrats are pushing for open borders. That's just factually untrue. There's not a single Democrat who's running on open borders. They're just not. The furthest anybody goes is Julian Castro. And when Julian Castro speaks about this issue, you have to listen to the specifics. What he says is, hey, I want to change border crossings from a misdemeanor, which is what they are right now, um, to a civil offense. And the only reason I'm doing that is to stop the family separations." So, in other words, it's still illegal, it's just a civil offense as opposed to a misdemeanor, and I want to stop the family separations, which we all agree is a terrible thing because we all don't like the kids in cages, or at least everybody says they don't like the kids in cages. So he's feeding into that lie, man. It, he used to actually argue. like He, he would say he, would, he supports Bernie, and he would argue for like Medicare for All, and now he's like undercutting left-wing arguments with shitty points. And it's really, uh, it's really embarrassing and sad to see. I mean, I guess that's what happens when <laughs> you're, you've been in your ivory tower for so long that you're just not in contact with regular people anymore. Like he's, he's just used to being in his little, you know, L.A. liberal bubble, surrounded by his well-off friends and other actors and shit and comedians and he's just lost touch he's lost touch and he's becoming so much more centrist he used to side with the left in the intra-party democratic fights he did i know a lot of people will be surprised to hear that but now this is very clearly him siding with the more conservative centrist neoliberal democrats in the intra-party fight and it's sad to see man Okay. So this story really highlights the sick groupthink in Washington, D.C. This is in The Hill. They say, presidential candidate Senator Elizabeth Warren is taking heat from all sides over her proposal to make it official U.S. policy not to be the first to use a nuclear weapon. Republicans slammed the proposal as sending a dangerous signal to both allies and enemies about a lack of U.S. resolve. previewing a potential attack line from President Trump should the two face off in the general election. Some Democrats do back the idea, but others say a no-first-use policy like the one Warren proposed is too simplistic for a complex world. Quote, the worry is that, of course, that should be our policy, but if we tell the world that is our policy, you actually may perversely encourage bad behavior in others, said Senator Tim Kaine, who was the Democratic vice presidential nominee in 2016. And also, for the record, an abysmal politician who is deeply unpopular and couldn't beat Donald Trump along with Hillary Clinton. Sad. He made Mike Pence look likable in a debate. Sad. Um, Look at how out of touch they are, man. And look at the framing. Look at the framing of this. Um, Make it official U.S. policy not to be the first to use a nuclear weapon. In other words, they're framing it as, oh, we have to get nuked first before we nuke back. Well, I have a different framing for it. Nobody is going to nuke us ever, wouldn't try it for even a split second, because they know what the consequences are. So this is us saying, let's not be complete and utter idiots, and let's not offensively nuke people. How's that for framing? When you frame it that way, hey... Should the U.S. offensively nuke anybody under any circumstance? When you frame it that way, everybody, every reasonable person is going to go, the fuck no, of course not. Are you ridiculous? Absolutely not. That's crazy. Offensively nuke people. It's, that is so immoral and unethical and stupid, it's hard to fathom that anybody would, in good faith, believe that and argue that. But in Washington, D.C., they're so disconnected from regular people, and they're so... In bed with the military industrial complex. That to them, it's like, well, duh. Obviously, we need to leave on the table the idea that we offensively nuke other countries. This is the only country that's ever used nuclear weapons, and we use it on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and we killed so many civilians. And there's no like grappling with that reality. It's more like, well, we reserve the right to always do that. Now that's a slightly different situation. We were in the middle of a war, but still it's just it it's really grotesque that the only country to ever massacre civilians that use nuclear weapons is just like casually musing out loud about like, well our policy is we can nuke anybody whenever the fuck we want. That's our policy. You cannot form a coherent logical argument for that position. Because that what you're doing is you're saying, We are immoral, we are unethical, we don't care about civilian death toll. By the way, anytime anybody would ever use nukes, there's going to be a massive civilian death toll. You're killing civilians on purpose, which, by the way, is the definition of terrorism. So in other words, all the idiots who are disagreeing with Elizabeth Warren here, they're putting their hands up and saying, I believe in terrorism. I believe sometimes we it's justified for us to be terrorists. Listen, man. I don't care what fucking propaganda you've digested in your life, watching goofy-ass movies that portray America as pure good and everybody else as pure evil. There is nobody who is going to offensively nuke us. Full stop. It's not going to happen. Simply not going to happen. Not even close to ever happening. So for us to say, I mean, the real reasonable conversation to be having is like starting to draw down and have fewer nukes in the world because it's so dangerous and human beings aren't really ready for this technology yet. So the real conversation is, hey, maybe we should draw down on our nuclear stockpile so we we could destroy the world 8,000 times over. But we're not having that conversation at all, even a little bit. The conversation that we're having is, hey, how dare you say that we can't offensively nuke people? And again, all the Republicans disagree with it, all of them. And like half the Democrats are going after Elizabeth Warren and Democrats literally went on the record with the Hill to try to distance themselves from Elizabeth Warren to say, no, no, no. I'm one of the good Democrats. I'm one of the guys who's cool with offensively nuking other countries. It's really pathetic, man. I mean, it's pathetic. It's embarrassing. It shows you how disconnected these people are. And the idea they're like, oh, Trump is going to kick her ass on this issue. All the time, Democrats have said, oh my God, Trump is a crazy person, Trump is a lunatic, Trump is a Manchurian candidate controlled by Russia. And then what? In the next breath you say, which is why I think it's totally cool that he can have his finger on the red button. What? What? You were just arguing he's insane and he should be nowhere near the Oval Office and he doesn't have the ability or the mental capacity or the temperament to have his finger on the red button. And now all of a sudden you're like, listen, we got to give Donald Trump, let him reserve the right to offensively nuke people. I am perpetually amazed at how out of touch they are in Washington, D.C. If you can't win this argument and you're on the left, wrap it up. Just go home and call it a day. Because this is one of the easiest arguments to ever win. How insanely militaristic is this country where the duh position in D.C. is offensively nuke people? Yeah,
10: totally. Sweet. I'm down.
1: Okay, next. So Fox frat boy Jesse Waters has a, a hot take on our healthcare system. This clip is just such a microcosm of the propaganda outlet that Fox News is.
4: But I like my health care, I go to the doctor, I check in, I give a $5 copay, he tells me I'm fine, I leave, I do no paperwork. It's great. And 180 million Americans feel that way. Only 27 million Americans do not have health insurance right now. Let's focus on them instead of tearing the whole system down. And Bernie, he thinks making a profit is evil. I I don't know what he's talking about. So many great things have been done through, through Aetna. Blue Cross and Blue Shield, I don't think these are evil companies. I think these are good companies that need to bring costs down. And there's ways to do that without destroying a great system. Trump can exploit this divide within the Democratic Party, and it's a gift, because the Republicans, I'm not really sure what their health care plan is, but the Democrats are making it so easy to exploit by offering up this socialist utopia that makes no sense and does remove health care from a lot of people. it felt like
1: Think about how stupid that commentary is. Seriously digest how dumb that commentary is. He thinks, and this is actually a weird benefit for Republicans, usually. He thinks, like, what do you mean, bro? You're handing me a political gift by arguing for the position that 70% of the country wants. You argue for the 70% liked position. I'll argue for the 30% position. And, yeah, bro, I'm going to crush you. They're handing a political gift to Trump. Trump can exploit this. Yeah, it'll be so, you know, politically powerful when Donald Trump goes out there and argues that our broken, corrupt, disgusting, rotten system that kills 45,000 Americans every year and bankrupts hundreds of thousands of them um, and leaves over 20 million people without insurance, that that system's good everything's good, everything's good, skyrocketing prices, not everybody's covered, absolute abysmal disaster, but yeah, I'm going to exploit this by arguing against the people who are arguing for the solution, I mean, how delusional, but that arrogance is amazing, because think about it, when when many Democrats have a huge lead on an issue, they're still too afraid to even talk about it, now Bernie's not, thank God, but it's just so funny that he's like so sure of himself, look at what he said there, he said 180 million Americans love their health insurance. Says who? <laughs> That's not true. Maybe 180 million Americans love their doctor. That's certainly possible. But guess what? Under Medicare for All, they get to keep their doctor. And they save money, too. And everything's covered. So I don't know where he comes up with this stuff. And then what a wonderful quote. This should be tattooed on his forehead. And he, have to, he should have to live with it for the rest of the time. Quote, only... 27 million Americans don't have health insurance. Let me repeat that. Quote, only 27 million Americans don't have health insurance. To all my Canadian brothers and sisters, please don't laugh so hard that you accidentally shit out your spleen. Because that sentence is one of the dumbest things I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) Only 27 million Americans don't have health insurance. Jesse, how stupid are you to construct that sentence, say it, and at no point pause and go, Wow, I sound really dumb. Only 27 million. know how many people in Canada don't have health care? Zero. How about Norway? Zero. Denmark, zero. Iceland, zero. Sweden, Finland, the UK, Australia. The list goes on and on. They all have... Nobody who's uninsured. Everybody's covered. Everybody gets their health care. It's free at the point of service. And then the best line he gave us was, he likes Aetna and Blue Cross Blue Shield. He thinks they've done, like, wonderful things. Their whole job is to serve as a middleman and tell you what is and isn't covered. That's their whole job. So their entire job is acting like a mafia. Because they get in between you and your doctor, get in between you and your hospital, and they say, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. What you're going to have to do is you're going to have to pay me $1,000 a month. And then if something happens to you, maybe, maybe not, it all depends, maybe I'll pay for some of it after you cover the first $5,000. What? So, we pay you every month. And then when something happens, you say, Well maybe I'll cover some of it. What the fuck is that? What is that? No, if I'm paying you every month, you better cover some shit if something happens. And of course we're getting ripped off too, because we're paying way more than in other countries. And not everything's covered. The idea of choice in healthcare, I can't get over how dumb that is. As if like like no, if you're sick, you should get help. Full stop having choice by definition means you're saying, well, some things, I, I don't want those things covered. What? <laughs> but it's obvious. It's like saying to the fire department, hey, man, if my if my den catches on fire, leave it alone. My kitchen, then you can come and put it out. What is that? That's choice. Aetna and Blue Cross Blue Shield, these are good
5: companies. They've done good things, bro. Ah,
1: they've done wonderful things as the unnecessary for-profit rapacious middleman jacking you and Price gouging the shit out of you and robbing your money and then not covering when push comes to shove. You know how they screamed about Obamacare death panels? The real death panels are the for profit health insurance companies. They make life and death decisions all the time. And Jesse Waters is praising them. Say, they good companies,
0: bro. they good companies, bro.
1: Embarrassing, man. This guy gets paid to give his political opinions. Uh uh-huh. make my job too easy? And again, I just, I'm going to leave you on this note. Seriously try to understand that he really just said that this is an advantage for the right. That taking the position that they're taking on health care is an advantage for them. Yeah, maybe against Democrats who just don't believe in Medicare for all and therefore can't defend it. Sure. But if you get somebody who actually believes in Medicare for all, And you want to debate that issue, and your position is the status quo is awesome, that will be the biggest bloodbath of a debate I've ever seen, which is why Bernie Sanders has to be the nominee, and we have to see him versus Trump, and Bernie will absolutely obliterate him 17 ways to Sunday. Okay. Let's go to Rush Limbaugh. So, Rush Limbaugh's brain started melting mid rant here on Fox News, and um, he's going to go after the Democrats since he watched the primary debate, and take note of why he thinks Democrats can't win. This is a special kind of of brain fart here. Watch.
12: Came out and admitted what all of this climate change is. He said every progressive liberal issue is wrapped up in climate change, and it is. Climate change is what allows them to poison the minds of young kids, to blame people for causing a problem and then offer them redemption, make them feel like they have meaning in their lives by saving the planet. It's gotten to the point these people actually have convinced people that we can change the weather, that we can change the temperature, and none of this is true. It's literal lunacy and insanity that has become mainstream on that side of the aisle, and they're going down the tubes with it. And it's, it's remarkable. It's remar- I watched that debate last night. I'm on the floor laughing uh, through, through so much of it. it you, you know it's bad when Ron Emanuel has to go on TV today and criticize these people for being nuts with, with this agenda. Uh, I mean, Gloria Borger on CNN after the debate, where was the inspiration? Where was the aspiration? There isn't any ins- People need to understand how the Democrats see America. This is the thing that just boggles my mind. They look out over this landscape, they see nothing but suffering. They don't see anybody other than in pain, victims of this, victims of that. Then they position themselves as the people who are going to fix it and get even with the other people, us, who have caused all of this misery. And there isn't anything they talk about That involves improving life. They talk about jobs, not careers. They do not offer anybody anything uplifting, and they haven't created a group of voters that even thinks uplifting. Their voter group is mired in all kinds of misery, injustice. I don't know how in the world anybody on that side thinks that they're going to put together a majority. To win a national election with that kind of an agenda, which thinks this point, you know, that America is not great, America is not exceptional, America is immoral and unjust, and has been since our founding. How do you Rush. build any kind of a genuine, serious movement on that kind of attitude about the country?
2: Ask Trump. <laughs> I, oh God! Oh
1: God! Oh my God! Rush. How did you not catch yourself in the world's most obvious contradiction? He's like, oh, can you believe these Democrats? They're running on the idea that there's a lot of, like, problems that we have to fix. I mean, can you imagine running a campaign and acting like America's not great? He used those words. He used those words. Can you imagine running and acting like America's not great and not exceptional? The dude who you are a sycophantic fanboy of ran with the slogan, make America great again. He spoke about, quote, American carnage. This is a guy who, when Bill O'Reilly pressed him on Vladimir Putin, he said, um, he called him a killer. And then Trump goes, yeah, killer. We got a lot of killers. We got a lot of killers here. What, you think we're so innocent? So everything he was arguing against at the end there, this is exactly the shit that that Trump ran on. Now, by the way, it's intelligent. I know Rush Limbaugh is too stupid to grasp this concept. But yes, not everybody's a a multimillionaire prick like you, and people are struggling. So when you run for office, yes, you absolutely have to say, hey, I noticed something. Here are all the problems. Here's how we're going to fix them. This system is corrupt. Drain the swamp. We're going to make America great again because it's not great now. Um, Trump oftentimes said our country is like a third world country. Now if a Democrat says those things, Rush Limbaugh loses his mind. You're anti-American. You hate America. Ilhan Omar ever so tepidly criticizes America. Oh, America, love it or leave it, best country ever. Apologize. How dare you say America's not the best
0: ever?
5: America's already great.
1: See, but, but okay, here's my, if anybody's watching this and they're a right winger, here's I'm pleading with you. And if you don't see it now, watch the clip over four or five times. See, you do understand that the reason why he can do this commentary is because Rush Limbaugh himself doesn't actually have any principled beliefs. Like, you do understand that, right? Which is why he can support Trump to the hilt when Trump talks about how, you know, America's turning into a third world country and America's not great. He loves it when Trump says that, but if a democrat says the same thing all of a sudden that's a problem. So you do understand that's a that's a dead giveaway he doesn't really have any principal beliefs. Because you guys listen, if you watch the show for a long time, you know the deal, man. I'll criticize anybody if they don't if they violate something that I view as as a principle of mine or a policy that I support. If somebody I don't care if they're on my team or not on my team, if they're not in favor of the thing I'm pushing for, well, I'm gonna fucking criticize them. That's called intellectual honesty. But Rush Limbaugh, that's out the window, man. He's not interested in that at all. All he cares about is playing for his team, defending Trump, attacking Democrats. I can tell every single Rush Limbaugh show that has ever been made since he's been on air. And by the way, he started on air when I was born in nineteen eighty-eight. I'll sum it up for you. Democrat, bad, Republican, good. Oh, oh, you're so brilliant, Rush. Oh, that's so intellectual of you. And the reason I kept in that clip to think about climate change is to further dunk on his punk ass. Because, really, the year's 2019, and you're out there. Denying climate change and acting like it's hilarious. It's so funny when people talk about climate change and try to actually fix this giant problem that virtually every single scientist in the fucking world agrees is a massive problem. That we're already seeing the effects of right now in front of our faces. We're already seeing it. We're seeing it right now. <laughs> That's <the> Climate change. <laughs> How crazy are these lefties believing in like climate change and like evolution and like gravity? <laughs> By the way, Rush Limbaugh is an evolution denier. We covered a story on that not too long ago. And again, he's so smug, he thinks like... Bro, you believe in evolution? Dumbass. This guy is ancient as fuck, and he's poisoning the mind of boomers all around this country. Now, thankfully, it's not nearly as many as it used to be. He had millions of listeners in the 1990s. Now my guess is that he's down overwhelmingly. But still, this guy poisoned the minds of an entire generation, mostly of old white dudes. And um, there are negative consequences for that. Because this guy, remember, he's the kingmaker in the Democratic Party, or, or excuse me, Republican Party. People have to bend the knee to Rush Limbaugh in order to be taken seriously. Like, he has to give them their blessing in order for them to be taken seriously. For, you know, random Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi Republican Congress people, they all go kiss the ring. They all go kiss the ring of Rush Limbaugh and he gives them the stamp of approval. And and the dude is wrong about everything. (laughs) And he controlled the agenda for an entire political party. It's honestly pathetic because there's not a single intellectually honest bone in his body. He's not consistent, he's not principled, he's embarrassing. All right, let's go to Gathy Newt Gingrich. So Newt Gingrich, also known as Gaffey Newt, uh, weighed in on the Democratic debate, and holy shit, was his commentary terrible? Take a look.
2: Uh, I watched uh, the first night. It was amazing the level of anger you got a lot of both Bernie Sanders uh, and uh, Senator Warren. I mean, these are really angry people. Uh, and it was kind of amazing to watch them. It's the opposite of how people normally win the presidency. You go back and you watch Barack Obama with a big smile. You watch Ronald Reagan with a big smile. I don't remember us electing an angry president uh, literally in my lifetime. And yet you had these people who were almost in a rage, uh, you also have the fact that they're all drifting towards cloud cuckoo land. I mean, <clears throat> when you have a number of moderate Democrats on the stage, and they will all be going soon because they are not getting enough support to survive, but they're on the stage and they're saying, one of them said, if we go down this road of taking away everybody's health insurance, we'll be lucky to carry two states. Now, that was a Democrat in the debate warning his fellow Democrats that they could be throwing away the presidency. Uh, and I think we have to take that seriously. And, of course, The president is watching all this, uh, and he's exactly right, and he wants to stoke uh, the fire a little bit about Obama. What's turned out is that President Obama is no longer radical enough for the left wing of the Democratic Party, so you end up with Biden defending Obama while the rest of the party attacks him. The truth is, on things like deportation, President Obama deported more illegal immigrants than any other president in American history. Uh, in terms of the Affordable Care Act, which was not affordable, but it didn't cover everybody that left-wingers want
13: to cover.
1: So in other words, what you're saying is the left is right. <laughs> yeah, there was criticism of Obama because Obama was wrong on many issues, and you just brought up some of those issues that the left disagrees. Increasing deportations, the deporter-in-chief, they... It wasn't even like all of them were criminals as well. No. Many of them were, but not all of them. So you're talking about how they're right. You said, oh, Obamacare didn't cover everybody that the left-wingers want to cover. Obamacare didn't cover everybody that Americans want to cover. Because at least nominally, people on the right, at least they pretend to say, oh, yeah, we're in favor of universal coverage, too. Of course, the devil's in the details, and none of their plans would cover everybody. But they at least nominally say, yeah, I want everybody covered. I like how Newt Gingrich can't even bring himself to do that. He's like, oh, the left-wingers want everybody covered. As if it's like, far left, crazy. You want people with health care? Gross. Such a goofball. Um, Now, I like how he brings up, like, John Delaney. Like, hey, he's warning you, man. Yeah, and that's why he's polling at, like, 0%. Is because he doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. And he's wrong, incredibly wrong. Um, and then uh, the most important point, and this is similar to what we just covered with Rush Limbaugh because he did the same thing. Notice that this is a talking point that they're all using now. And, you know, in the case of the Republicans, there is a smoke filled back room. They have these meetings, the meetings include all the Congress people, the entire Republican caucus. And apparently you got the talking heads, the different media personalities that are in on these meetings, too, because they're all running with the same argument now. Oh, these Democrats, they're so angry. They're so rage-filled. I mean, I've never seen anybody be this angry and this rage-filled and talking about how this country's bad and needs fixing. That was Trump's entire campaign. But see, listen, this is how you know they have nothing on these people. What are they going to say in an election against Bernie Sanders? Elizabeth Warren. What are they gonna say? Venezuela? And Bernie be like, I didn't say anything about Venezuela. You said something about Venezuela. I'm talking about Sweden, bitch.
2: Venezuela?
1: You brought up Venezuela. You brought up Venezuela. Well, communism. I didn't say anything. You said something about communism. I didn't say anything about communism. What are you talking about? (laughs) They have nothing.
9: Angry, rage-filled.
1: Yeah, I'm mad. Why aren't you mad? Half of workers make $30,000 a year or less. You should be mad. 45,000 Americans die because they don't have access to basic health care. Why aren't you mad? We're bombing eight different countries. Get mad. We lock up more people in this country than in any other country in the world. And many of those people are locked up for nonviolent drug offenses. Be mad. Yeah, I'm mad. And you should be, too. It's a, they just whenever whenever it's convenient, they just pretend like the whole Trump thing didn't happen. because Trump ran on anger and rage filled. He was the opposite of Reagan. Reagan ran with the morning in America, let me blow smoke up your ass and talk about sunshine and puppies. yeah. that was Reagan. We're out of the era of Reagan. People are pissed because our system's broken and corrupt and rotten. That's why somebody won the election who was talking about how America turned into a third world country. America's not great. We got to make America great
10: again. Remember,
1: Hillary was the one who said America's already great. When Gingrich is saying that that's the strategy that makes sense. I've never known any president that got elected that was so rage-filled. Well, he's your buddy, and he's in office right right now. They're such hacks, and I can't stand it. All right, Michael Moore. So Michael Moore weighed in on the 2020 election, and his commentary was confusing.
13: Ballot initiatives, as you said, this is how we did it in Michigan in November. We, We got a ballot proposal passed To legalize marijuana, that doubled the youth vote from the last off year election. And we had a ballot initiative that passed that made it illegal to gerrymander or to do voter suppression. That brought out a large African American community uh, at the the voting booth. So we then, that caused Michigan to go back into the blue category. All four top offices in the state capitol governor, lieutenant governor, uh, uh, attorney general, secretary of state are all Democrats now, and we remove two Republicans in suburban Detroit, white suburban Detroit, and replace them with two Democratic women. So that's what we have to do this time. In the swing states, you must have ballot proposals to bring out the base. Raise the minimum wage, uh, pass the Equal Rights Amendment for women, uh, uh, the ones we did in Michigan. You know, there's so many, th- free college. All those things are going to bring out the base if you have them as ballot proposals. And number three, we have to have a candidate who is beloved by the American people, and who is outside the, the political inner circle, somebody who's not a politician, somebody who's gonna win. I think, in my humble opinion, four of these candidates running could beat uh, Trump. Bernie, Biden, uh, Kamala Harris, and, uh, and Elizabeth Warren. They could beat him. But Hillary beat him. It, it's not enough just to beat Trump. The only way to remove Trump is to crush Trump. And that's the question that has to be asked. Who can crush Trump? Who's the street fighter? We saw it in Bernie last night. Who's the street fighter that can crush Trump? And frankly, I think there's a person that could do this. If the election were held today, there is one person that would crush Trump and she hasn't announced yet. And her last name rhymes with Obama. <laughs> it is Obama. Michelle Obama. Everybody watching this right now knows she is a beloved American and she will go in there and she would beat him. She would beat him in the debates. He wouldn't be able to bully her. He wouldn't be able to nickname her.
1: What? what? Where does that come from? What is that based on? That was so left field. He was doing everything he was saying was spot on like, okay, let's make it about policy, let's put the ballot initiative there, free college, all these important you know, proposals. I think Bernie killed it in the debate. I think there's some candidates who could beat Trump, including Bernie. He's had Bernie number one, but then he had some others. I'm not – I think Kamala maybe could beat Trump, but I, I would – it'd be a nail-biter because I think she would immediately pivot to the center in the general, and that would hurt her chances. So – but either way, whatever. Give him a pass for that part. Then he says there's only one who could crush him, and it's Michelle Obama. What is what is that based on, Michael? Every now and then, he hits you with a take that's just like, (laughs) that's just so out of left field that nobody saw it coming. And you're like, I don't know where you get this shit from, dog. Like, where do you get that from? What is that? I have no idea if Michelle Obama would be a candidate who could beat Trump. I've never seen a poll on it. But when you talk about this, honestly, it reminds me quite a bit of, didn't I think he was the guy who said, like last year, like, oh, the Democrats need to run our own celebrity, like The Rock or Tom Hanks or Oprah Winfrey. Why? Why? See, sometimes so many of these people just get involved in this goofy-ass this goofy-ass thing where it becomes about the, the, the reality angle to it, the reality TV angle to it, and it becomes about just anti-Trumpism. Like, that's, that's the core of it. And so they start thinking in these weird ways where it's like, well, he's a celebrity, so let's get our own celebrity, and that'll do it. Yeah, but then what do you think those celebrities are going to do? Like, what, you think The Rock is going to go in there and crusade for Medicare for All? I highly doubt it. Highly doubt it. <laughs> so it's just, reel it in a little bit, man. Reel it in a little bit. Like, what a bizarre take that definitely nobody saw coming. And I don't understand where it comes from. I don't understand what the motivation is to make an argument like that. It's based on no data whatsoever. But he seems so convinced. Like, oh, she's a beloved American. Yeah, Democrats like her. Lefties like her. I got nothing against Michelle Obama. I don't know much about her politics, but that's the point. Is that that's, that's the problem? Is I don't know. Is she like a like a Bill Clinton, uh, Hillary Clinton, President Obama type of? you know, status quo defending liberal or or what? Is she a Bernie Sanders swashbuckling leftist? I have no idea, and neither do you. So why would you say she's the one who needs to get elected? Too much of it just comes down to I want to beat Trump and that's it. And it's not like they don't go those few steps further to really think about the implications of what should be done. Now at least he brought up the ballot initiatives which was good, but I don't know, Michael. I don't know where you got that from, but it really strikes me as incredibly silly, and I think deep down you might know that was a silly point. All right, final story of the day. It'll be a quick one, but let's go for it. John Delaney. So John Delaney decided to uh, go on Fox News to go after Democrats, and this is just sad. He ran to a a conservative safe space because they were the only people who were going to give him some positive reinforcement. Because nobody on the left likes him because all he does is shit on the left. So let's see how this exchange goes. With
13: Warren, she has a plan for everything, but she's never implemented
9: a plan for anything. Well, I guess it's not just Elizabeth Warren, it's Bernie Sanders, and, I mean, if you, if you take what they're saying to an extreme, what's next, free vacations, you know, free housing, free everything? I mean, right. at, at some point, we do have to yeah. pay for these things. I believe there is a role of government to, to do things to give people the kind of opportunity they deserve, like we've seen here in Detroit in the last couple of years, where we've seen a really good turnaround when the government and the private sector actually work together. And that's kind of how I think about the
3: way we should be approaching everything. I thought it was uh, I thought it was very practical what you were saying last night. I thought you did a good job with that because we all knew that kid in school that, that beat you when you were running for student body president. Cause they promised to put snack machines in all the classes. You know that's not going to happen, but the kids hear that and they want you know and they vote for that person. So I felt like that that was your moment last night, even though the crowd really applauded. Promising a lot, you're not gonna be able to deliver this. Watch that that part from last night.
9: Democrats win when we run on real solutions,
4: not impossible promises. When we run on things that are workable. You know, I don't understand why anybody goes to all the trouble of running for president of the United States just to talk
3: about what we really can't do and shouldn't fight for. What's your reaction to that? I mean, you're running for president because you're being honest with the American people. I don't understand why people run, and then they promise stuff, and then it never
9: happens. Well, that's the response um, when someone really can't defend their plans. So, for example, if, if John F. Kennedy, when he said we should go to the moon by the end of the, the decade in the 60s, someone could have said, to well, well, you're not saying we, we should go to the moon next month. So you're not being ambitious enough, right? Right? So, so it's a dishonest kind of lazy response. It's similar to when they say it's a Republican talking. left of the party. when you point out obvious point you know that's the problem with it with the extreme left of the party. When you point out obvious flaws and the things they're talking about, they say, well, that's a Republican talking point. And I'm like, no, it's actually a fact that you should be able to defend.
1: No, it's not a fact and we can defend it. And you're just not listening because you're an ideologue and you're married to your your current set of beliefs. Now, that set of beliefs include Medicare for all is impossible and it doesn't make sense. How about you respond to this point? Every other developed country has one version or another of a single-payer health care system. And they have better health outcomes than we do. Everybody's covered and it costs less. So, no, the reason why they say it's a Republican talking point is because it is a Republican talking point, And the reason why they say it is because it's true. There's, John Delaney is the worst of the worst because he is smug and arrogant along with being factually wrong about virtually everything he fucking talks about. So I can't stand this guy because all that was was straw man central, baby. All he did, um, oh, that response from Elizabeth Warren is the same response when someone can't defend their plans. Actually, no, she can defend her plans. You just don't listen to her response. You just act like, how are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? Okay, well, you know, for, for Bernie in the case of the free college bill, let's take How are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? Um, Wall Street transaction tax. But how are you going to pay for it? I just told you. Were you not listening? Did you not care? Wall Street transaction tax. <laughs> uh, Offering all this free stuff. How are you even going to pay for it, bro? I just said it twice. Did you not hear it? Wall Street transaction tax. There you go again, bro. Promising everybody everything without a plan to pay for it. We're answering your fucking question, and you're not listening and digesting it, because you know what? You're the one who has no real response. All you have is, like, scorn based on nothing, but a lazy assumption that the status quo is how it is for a reason and therefore it should kind of stay like that and the best we could do is tweaks around the edges. You're the one who has no real response. That's why you don't respond to what we actually say. That's why when you say Medicare for all is impossible and we say every country has one version or another of a single-payer system and they're better than ours, your response is, <clears throat> <coughs> I'm going to go to Fox News because they'll defend me there. Well, you're right. I hope you're having fun with all your new friends who are telling you you're so intelligent and you're so on point. Oh, yeah, by the way, all those people who are talking to you are massive idiots who've never been right about anything ever. Thank you very much. Um, the lead-in question, this guy's such a dishonest prick. The lead-in question was Kilmeade saying, Warren has a plan for everything, but she's never implemented a plan for anything. Except the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which was dead in the water until she forced President Obama to include it in uh, the Dodd-Frank reform bills after the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. And as a result of that,
2: billions of
1: dollars have been returned to defrauded Americans. Big financial institutions screwing over regular Americans because of her agency that she created. People got their money back. And justice was served. So when you say that, and Delaney's more than happy to sit there and let them lie and say, oh, yeah, no, totally, yeah, she never did anything. And then I like, again, shows you how lazy he is. He goes, ha, what's next? Free vacation? Free housing? Free everything? Nobody argued for free everything because nobody believes in free everything. People have argued for free vacation, again, because other countries have free vacation. Now, It varies. Uh, which place you go to and what percentage is played by the place of em- employment versus the government. So there is a conversation to be had in those instances. but the idea that free vacation is like crazy, the idea that free housing is crazy, Hey John, if you followed the literature on this, you would know that it actually saves money based on various studies. It saves money to put a roof over the head of a homeless person. Why? Because when they're out there in the street, what ends up happening. They have multiple run-ins with law enforcement, and they get arrested. They have to go, uh, you know, they take drugs, and then they have to go to the hospital, and they get there, and, and that needs to get paid for by the taxpayers because they don't have the money to, to pay for getting help with an overdose or whatever it might be. When they're on the street, it costs more money to the taxpayer than if you give them, like, a small studio apartment with a room, roof over their head. So he frank, these things that there's already like a lot of, of, of evidence on and studies for and and there's precedent in other countries in dealing with this stuff. All these things he just smugly scoffs at as if they're crazy. When really the crazy one is him because he's running for president and he hasn't even bothered to learn anything about the way other countries, developed countries, function. Whether it be the free vacation or free uh, housing or or Medicare for all or single payer health care or uh, free college, or whatever it might be. So, I mean, he's so embarrassing, man. And he doesn't have a leg to stand on. But now, you know what? At least he's going to his political home. His political home is more on Fox News, because he agrees with them more. Just keep it real. Okay, John Delaney does not hate gay people, does not hate black people, might be in favor of some versions of gun reform. That's all true and fine and dandy. But John Delaney is against the defining policy issues on the left today, the defining issues. And you know, you know them, and I know them, and this is what Bernie Sanders is leading on. So, okay, if you disagree with, like, the main things that it would mean to be on the left, what are you doing, dog? What are you doing? Just be honest with yourself. Go primary Trump as a Republican. You'd fit in a lot better, although you'd have 0% there as well. Okay, all right, guys, out of time, baby, out of show. Love you all, talk to you soon, Um, I'm out, peace.